I think that the impact comes from how much you do, not just how little you spend. Purpose Deep Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. Everybody, welcome to Purposely with Charlie Brinsler. Charlie is the co-founder of the charity, The Life You Can Save. It promotes effective giving and philanthropy on behalf of people living in extreme poverty. He's former president of the Men's Warehouse Group. He was also a clinical psychologist, a really interesting character. Our conversation is wide-ranging. I love the fact he's about to leave the episode to go and have sushi in Canada. That's how close he lives to the border. Enjoy the episode. Don't forget to hit subscribe here on Apple Podcasts, share with family and friends. Enjoy. Charlie Brinslow, welcome to Purposely. Thank you very much for having me on your show. You are the co-founder of The Life You Can Save. Tell me about its vision and mission. The Life You Can Save is an organization that really seeks to be, if you will, the Amazon of what we call effective giving. Effective giving is finding very, very cost-effective high-impact charities. These charities are in the developing world in sub-Saharan Africa or South Asia because that is where a dollar goes the most good. So we would like to be a charity that would be as simple to use as Amazon or Airbnb. And 20 years from now, if you went into a nice restaurant or cafeteria in Sydney or Melbourne or Perth or Adelaide or Auckland, that people would have heard of the life you can save and say, oh, yeah, that's where I go to give uh, to the most effective charities. And yes, I do some giving here in Auckland or I do some giving here in uh, Sydney, but I spend a lot of money that I, a lot of the donations I give are through the life you can save because they're able to give me the best places to give money to have the most bang for your buck. So you use others' research, like people like GiveWell, you utilize their sort of analysis or due diligence, and then you curate a list of charities against the causes as effectively yeah, on a platform. Only, that- we also have our recently our own in-house of charity evaluation team. So we curate from other people. We curate with our own evaluation team. We take not just from GiveWell, but other uh, people who are doing charity evaluation. We hope to be very broad in our offerings uh, in terms of the causes that we we represent, as well as the number of charities under each cause, whereas GiveWell High Impact Fund really only features four charities. 50% of their money goes to malaria, which is wonderful. And the two charities that they have for malaria, that get a lot of this money, we also have on our website. We have about 25 charities that we feature and we in a sense are trying to be a lot broader than GiveWell and give people more options. What GiveWell is very good at is doing research on very, very cost effective charities. And you know, America's a massive country, huge population. Give us a feel of the kind of scale of, of, of your operation, how many people are using the site and how it's set up. Well we're we're still I would almost call like a beginning stage or middle stage startup in the sense we currently have about 60,000 subscribers, but we aspire to have millions, but we haven't been able to raise enough money for our own operating budget to be able to market and develop a staff that can get the right partnerships um, and distribute our book, which I'll talk more about. Um, But we currently have raised about $22 million 
for our recommended charities on a spend, meaning our operations of about $1.2 million. So we think we're very efficient at getting money, but it's still just a drop in the bucket, $22 million compared to what we really want. I mean, for in the United States, over $300 billion is given by individuals to charities. Yeah, that's on an annual basis as well. I was absolutely blown away by that figure. And your operations fuel been fueled, like bootstrapped, if you like, and being fueled by the sort of you know man hours of volunteers? No, there we have a, a regular proper staff. There are a lot of volunteers like myself. I've been volunteering for the very beginning, and my wife and I um, are probably the largest contributors to the Life You Can Save meeting to support our organization. But interestingly enough, Peter and Renata Singer are probably the, are the second largest personal contributors. Peter just gave us half a million dollars from the Bruin Prize that he won, which was a million dollars. And he gave $350,000 away to welfare, animal welfare charities and another $150,000 uh, to our recommended nonprofits on the vote of our subscribers. So, which was kind of an amazing thing to do. Not that many people win a million dollars and immediately give it away, especially when they're not wealthy themselves. But that's Peter Singer. So, yeah, we're on that scale to answer your question. Yeah. And diving back to your past, and we'll get to Peter Singer in a minute, but in terms of, you know, this this came about later in life. At your early stages of your life, you've, you're an activist when you were growing up. You're quite a deep thinker about the world and your role in it. I hope so. I, I was, when I was a university student, just to give your audience um, a, a historical perspective, I'm 73 years old. So I was in university between 1967 and 71, and then got a graduate degree between 1971 and 73. And then I got my PhD later on after I'd done some other things between 1981 and 1984. My undergraduate degree was in history. My graduate, my first graduate degree was also in history and education. And my final graduate degree was in psychology. But during that time of being in university, I became extremely concerned about the war in Vietnam and what we, the United States was doing, not only in Vietnam, but American foreign policy in general. I don't think you probably want me to get into that during this podcast, but of course, I'd answer any questions about that. But it made me quite alienated, if you will, from the dominant perspective in the United States. And... Um, but I was very interested also in the civil rights movement at that time, which was really led by Martin Luther King, but it also became more radicalized after a while. But I was probably more focused on the, the King part of the movement, the civil disobedience part of the movement. So I was extremely active in the anti-war movement between 1968 and the time the war ended in 1973, 1975 was the formal end of the war. So I think I developed, I developed a consciousness of feeling like we had a moral obligation to make sure that you're our own country and uh, was doing well by other people and that our own country was distributing its tremendous wealth um, fairly among its own population and not taking wealth from other countries, particularly through extraction industries and, and other things. So yeah, I've always had a lot, a lot to think about in that regard. And I guess it's worth adding that I grew up in a family that was uh, a Jewish family, not very religious, kind of what I would call a 
secular Jewish family, but I grew up being talked to about the Holocaust and genocide, not only the genocide of the Jews by the Nazis, but also the Armenians by the Turks, and being very, very concerned about those kinds of things. So even though I don't think I've been exemplary in in my own philanthropy or my own social activism throughout my entire life, there was a definite foundation laid by the time I was 19 or 20. It took me a very long time to figure out how to act on that foundation. I guess that's what I would say. And what interested me when I looked at your background is, so you, you know, did a PhD in social and political psychology. You were clearly interested in, in the mind and, and that sort of shaped your future career, uh, at least initially. But you were interested in the sort of macro politics or the, you know, the sort of, um, how society was and the route it was going. What, what made you focus more on individual psychology or, or was it the sort of society that you were focused on at that point? Like, what drove your career those early days? Well, candidly, what happened is I started off teaching history to secondary school students for three years. And it was really hard for me, being completely candid, and it was really hard for me to exist comfortably in that environment. Not the students. I got along uh, swimmingly with the students. But the other faculty members were not uh, generally people who saw the world at this at all in the same way. And I felt pretty alienated. And I think it now with the, with the hopeful maturity I have now, I could have handled the situation a whole lot better and maybe uh, stuck it out. And, and maybe it would have been a good thing for me to do. But I just basically gave up. And after three years of teaching, I have to say, I went on uh, kind of dropped out, if you will. And that's when I turned to tennis and uh, as kind of a uh, a saving grace for me, if you will, um, that and my wife, who I'd met in high school. I mean, it was a combination of this great relationship I had, which I was very, very lucky to have, because not too many people meet their soulmate in high school. And um, so it was a combination of that plus tennis, which sort of carried me through what might have otherwise been a quite difficult period. But eventually, I got sick of being a tennis player and just eking out a living. Um, And I decided that I should try to get a proper degree in psychology because I had been working as a psychology tech after my tennis quote-unquote career just because I wandered into doing it and I was pretty good at talking with people even though I had no formal training. And I got a job at the Community Mental Health Center from the tennis club because the director of the Community Mental Health Center was on my tennis team at the tennis club. So that's kind of how that happened. And I really didn't intend to become a psychologist or stay in counseling. It was more like I wandered into it in the same way that I kind of wandered into being a tennis player. I didn't, I mean, I've been playing tennis my life, but but I, I didn't really expect to have, like manage a tennis club and teach tennis and play a lot of tennis tournaments, nor did I expect to get involved. And maybe that's in, in health, community mental health or, or become a psychologist. And I know this sounds rather aimless and wait till you hear the next part of the story. But I do think until I started working with Peter in 2013, I had this extremely solid family life and marriage. But a lot of things I did, I just wandered into because, frankly, they were there. I know that sounds really um, horrible, but but I think it's truthful. Do you have a a memory of something missing, like a sense of purpose missing at that point, or you just 
tended not to think too much about it and just took life as it came? No, I did think about it all the time and I wanted to do something which would create more structural change in the world. But I found myself being really focused on my family and my own personal development. I ran marathons. I went, I switched from tennis to running. And um, so I really dedicated myself to my own family. And even though I've gotten some good values from my parents, they weren't around when I was really during many of my formative years. And um, my mother was in a mental institution and my father had a lot of problems. And so I think I just determined I was going to be the husband and parent that I never really had. Maybe that sounds like a cliche. And I gave up on social intervention. And I think that was a big mistake. I mean, it was great that I was so involved with my wonderful children and my wife, but it, it and I loved exercising, but I think I really, I think I owed more to my society than I gave. I took more than I gave, I think. And you wanted to sort of awaken that activist you had been in the 70s, but you, you headed off into business, is that right, at that point? Yeah, so what happened is we were living in the Central Valley of California. I can't, there is nothing like it in New Zealand, but it's very much like living in Perth during the summer in the sense that for those of you that know Australia, it's just really hot and dry and unlike Perth isolated yeah there's nothing (laughs) interesting that was going on where we were living I'm sure Perth is a vibrant city compared to where we were in Fresno California so we decided my wife was a family doctor by this time we decided she would just get a job and I would start an anxiety and stress disorders clinic which was my specialty at the university I was teaching at my clinical specialty not my theoretical specialty and so I got a set up to get a job starting an anxiety and stress disorder clinic in the San Francisco area. My wife got a job. We were moving to a wonderful place. And at that time, an old childhood friend approached me kind of coincidentally and said, hey, would you consider joining my company, which just went public and starting a training program? And here I was a lifelong leftist, if you will, although inactive in many ways. And I was being asked to be part of this public company, retail company, retail clothing company, which I wasn't interested in clothing and I wasn't interested in business. And I was very much against the sort of hierarchy of business, but it was an opportunity to do something that seemed interesting. And so including and continuing my wandering, I said, yes. And lo and behold, much to my surprise and maybe not his, but mine, I actually turned out to be extremely good at business better than I was in tennis or better than, well, I don't know, better than as a psychologist, but definitely better than I was at publishing research. So the training program I started had a dramatic impact on the earnings of the company. And one thing led to another. And before I knew it, I was starting an employee relations program, becoming head of stores, and also ultimately the head of marketing, and finally the president of that company. So something that started as a kind of like, okay, well, I'll take a job now. Um, because I'm looking for a job and I'm not so anxious to run a clinic. I'll go work for George. That was his name or is his name. And um, it'll be okay. But I never thought about staying on for 18 years. Or Wow. And that was the men's, men's warehouse? The men's warehouse. Right? Some of the American listeners will, will know of it. In its heyday, it was kind of an interesting company. It, it's not like that anymore, but I won't get into that. But It still exists? It still exists in a different form because it made a 
well, as I was leaving and the founder was fired, those were not the, not for the same reason. I just decided I wanted to do something of social value. I finally wanted to do something consistent with what I believed in. They made a terrible acquisition in the company. It didn't go bankrupt, but it, it basically went from having zero debt to having 1.8 billion US dollars worth of debt. And, uh, and things sort of fell apart from there. Yeah. And just, just reflecting on that for a minute, just, just touching on the kind of your ethos for life and your psychology, you know, suddenly you're thrust into a commercial role and, and you're worrying about profit and sales and all that, all that stuff. And was that, did that make sense? Did you, did it, did you ever sense that actually you, at some stage, you would like to head off in another direction or did you just get into it? I'd say both. I mean, I got really into it. I mean, I guess partly because, you know, I'm, I, I had this background in sports and, and tennis and yeah, I got into winning. I got into making sure that the company did really well, that my colleagues respected me, that I worked super hard and that I fulfilled my role as it, whatever the role was, I had many roles there, but um, that I did the best job I could do. My wandering was stopped. I was really, in a sense, determined. My psychological wandering was not stopped, but I was, which I, which really stopped more at Peter Singer. But I think I have tremendous ability to handle what psychologists call cognitive dissonance, where there's a, a where you're doing one thing, but you're, you're, you're thinking and your values are somewhere else but you are able to keep doing both. Most people resolve it by changing what they think to fit with their behavior, but I actually never changed what I thought to fit with my behavior as a business person. And to be fair, I guess on the positive side, I always was very vocal about what I really believe should happen in terms of executive salaries and wages for uh, other people. And um, I think I was a voice for employee empowerment and increased compensation but you always as a public company have to balance shareholder interest but i was acutely aware of the conflict but nevertheless i would just say i fulfilled my role in keeping with what the board of directors wanted which is why i could ultimately become president so i think it, it doesn't speak that well of me in many ways but i think it's very unusual to be able to do that given what i believed and i think my wife who of course knew what I believe as better than anybody, um, was always quite astounded that that I could do it. But it came as a huge relief to me in 2008 when I finally decided to get off of this treadmill and resign. I mean, I was supposed to be the next CEO of the company and I was making a lot of money and I just said, no, I'm not going to do this anymore. And I finally stopped wandering, if you will, and decided to do something that was consistent with my values. Do you remember the day when you resigned? Yeah, I do. I remember going into George's office and telling him that I was done. And I was very, very nervous. And I was also nervous talking to the board because they were counting on me to take George's place, I think. It wasn't a done deal, but it seemed like that was where it was headed. And I just, I don't know, I think it was, it was very nervous, but I, it was. It felt right. I wasn't thinking I might be making a mistake, and I'm not that materialistic, so I wasn't that concerned about giving up the, all that money. And often, men are, you know, work becomes their all, and their whole identity is wrapped up in it. But that initial phase after leaving the men's warehouse and 
you know, being so engaged. Did, was, do you remember that being a difficult period? No, uh-uh. I'd always stayed really involved with my kids and my wife. And so I was at all the swim meets. My daughter was a competitive swimmer through college. Um, my son was an athlete as well. They all did. They always did really well in school, so they didn't need much support from me there. But I was home for dinner most nights, and I did travel a lot. I probably traveled seventy nights a year. But when I stopped working so much at the men's house, it didn't seem like a, a huge change in terms of my family life. Really, I, the biggest change was trying to figure out how to use my energy productively to feel like I was going to make an impact. And I did a couple of interesting things, but they weren't enough. And then when I read The Life You Can Save, that really changed everything. Yeah. Tell me about that. Because, you know, we all read books that might shift our behavior or our thinking, but not as many as life-changing as that. And and we also, for our audience, should describe a little bit more about Peter Singer as well. He's a, a philosopher. But yeah, tell us about that book and maybe even how that book landed in your hands. Gosh, I don't know. I was on vacation in Hawaii. And I was reading a heavy philosophy book that Peter had written called Practical Ethics, which actually took me a lot of work. I think sometimes Peter thinks of me as a business person and like is always shocked that I'm also sort of a quasi-intellectual. So he's always surprised that I was reading that book. And as the years have gone by and we've gotten to know each other better, he realized, wait a second, this guy's not really a business person. This guy's really an academic, more like me. But um, But in those days, I was reading Practical Ethics and then somehow in a way i don't remember i said well i want to read another book by this guy and i got my hands on the life you can save and peter was making the argument that i already felt but hadn't done anything which was we have a moral obligation to help the poorest people in the world and to do it in a highly effective way not just do it so our friends would think we were wonderful or not just do it so we could make ourselves feel better, but do it in a way that really made a difference and do it by giving money or raising money, in our case, for highly effective, high impact organizations. And it was like, wow, I've been I've been looking to create structural change. I haven't done anything about it since the 70s. Uh, even then, I wasn't really very successful as nobody was here in the United States. And Rather than thinking about changing the world or changing the American economy and making it more equally distributed, this was an opportunity to actually save lives and reduce suffering and know you were doing it. And that just really appealed to me because I'd been, I'd been completely confused about how I could make an impact. And I think a lot of people were and have been. And particularly now in the United States, I think people are feeling despondent about how they can really do things uh in a progressive way so so that that book so read the book you're sitting there with the book you've read it over a couple of days this uh, i effective altruism is is this kind of headline isn't it and you reach out to them literally you you call them you write to them yeah i'll talk about effective altruism because altruism isn't a word that really appeals to me or resonates with me but i'll talk about that in a bit but right peter was the major influencer of the effective altruist movement. And I didn't know Peter Singer. I'd never read philosophy since my freshman freshman year in college. I took a philosophy course, ethics. But I wrote him an email. And I think because I had all this business experience and I was used to dealing with powerful people, I wasn't really intimidated to, to write this famous philosopher an email. And I, so I was lucky that way. And I wrote him an email saying that my 
my wife and I wanted to help him with the development of the organization. Would he be willing to speak with me? And he answered. And he said, sure. And we got to talking and one thing led to another. And there was a woman. You met him in person straight away? I did or got the on the TED Talk. But we started this conversation, which was 2013, I believe, but we'd have to look. But no, but we started with conversations on Skype. In those days, everyone used Skype. Nobody used Zoom. It's funny how, <laughs> how it's changed. And, uh, and Peter still uses Skype. But um, when I talked to Peter and we got to talking and, and Diane and I decided that we would take $400,000 that we felt like we'd borrowed, if you will, as I said in the introduction. And we would start in a proper organization. And I worked with this young Oxford uh, student named Holly Morgan, who was a follower of Peter's. And we took his very uh, rudimentary website and we got uh, to be a nonprofit in the United States, which took a fair amount of work. And then slowly we, we changed the website. Holly decided she was going to go on and do some other things. So I was left as the sole executive director. That's how we got started. And a lot of the early days was working on the website, trying to raise more money for the nonprofits that were already curated when I got there and hiring a few staff that could help particularly with, with the website and technology, which was a weakness of mine. And we built a staff and I raised enough money for the life you can save to continue to grow a staff and grow uh, so we went from, I think, $400,000 we raised in the first year. And I think last year we raised $22 million. But wow. the goal is to raise hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars every year. Because the influence that Peter's book has had, The Life You Can Save, the argument he makes has so profoundly affected some of the mega rich people in the world that even though our organization has only moved $22 million last year, Peter's going to be responsible for moving billions of dollars because of the way wealth is distributed and the way Peter's book hits people, some people, not most people, but some people, some of these very, very wealthy people are giving to the type of charities that we're talking about. So they don't give through the life you can save, but they've been influenced by Peter Singer. Yeah. And I think, I'd like to say that we have this, his book is for free on our website, thelifeyoucansave.org. And you can get it in New Zealand or Australia as well. I think it's backslash AU. If, if, if you go to the Australian website, uh, thelifeyoucansave.org backslash AU. And you can get an ebook that you can download for free, or you can get the audio book, which was narrated by people like Stephen Fry and Kristen Bell, Paul Simon. They each read a chapter. And uh, you can listen to the book. So we want to distribute millions of those books around the world so that we can, that's the way we expect we'll be able to raise the kind of money we want to raise. And, you know, shift people's, their thought and lead them to to action. So fundamental, maybe it's a slight difference of opinion with Peter in terms of, you mentioned it earlier about effective altruism, because you have a different philosophy, don't you? So you talk about, you're not really a fan of altruism. No, I, I like to think of it in a way as effective hedonism. I just wrote an article which was published in Body and Soul in Australia, but the first line of it is, I take my pleasure seriously. And I believe if one is an effective hedonist, you make really, really good choices about what's going to give you the most pleasure. And the most pleasure isn't just chasing making a lot of money. 
the, the most pleasure you can get is reaching a certain material desire and developing hobbies and being committed to other people, but then also helping some of the neediest people in the world, which we know from research gives people a real, really great feeling about themselves. And so to me, if you, if you see a heen, if you see the goal of hedonism is to seek the most pleasure, you can't seek the most pleasure without doing the most good because doing the most good is a critical part of being a really effective pleasure seeker as opposed to somebody who's just on this hedonic treadmill that thinks more material possessions will make me happy, uh, more sexual experiences will make me happy, more this, more that. And so a lot of what I like to think about and what I plan to write about going forward, I call effective hedonism. Yeah, I'm on your page on that. And I think that's a, a really good way of describing what is actually the truth. And in terms of, you know, giving can be actually really poorly executed and badly done. So, you know, I've got examples from the past where I've been involved in funding a charity who were working in Nepal and you've got philanthropists, you know, people are given to different causes in Nepal and actually the money never hit the community. Schools were built that were never used. The person today the money would have felt really good about themselves, but actually the impact wasn't there for communities. And, and there's that, I think, imperative that when an organization, a charity and agency is working with a community, it needs to be with the community in partnership. Like what, what's your view on good and bad philanthropy? Well, I think the advantage that we have is we've been able to get this excellent research being done by GiveWell and other organizations, and we've been able to curate these charities that we know are getting the money to do a lot of good and are, if they're building schools, they're building schools that are used, if they're delivering a malaria next to keep people from getting malaria, that they're being distributed effectively, that they're being monitored and used properly. If we're creating television or radio ads to get moms to bring their kids to the clinic for diarrhea or other uh, types of illnesses which are very treatable, but they don't know how to treat unless they go to the clinic. If we're doing that, we know that we're having a lot of impact. There are ways of giving. Most charities do some good, but the charities that we're supporting do incredible amount of good for very little money. I'm going to give you an example of a problem in a minute. But here's an example. It create it taught it cost about forty thousand dollars to train a guide dog to help a blind person for seven years. Now, if you were blind, Mark, or I were blind, I would want a guide dog. And if I could afford it, I would pay forty thousand dollars to be able to have a guide dog. It would make all the difference in the world. But in contrast, the Fred Hollows Foundation which is one of the charities that we promote, which is an Australian charity, can cure blindness in a child who's been congenitally blind from cataracts for $50. So think about 40,000 divided by 50, and I think you can see that it's 800 times more effective than the guide dog, and the guide dog is only helping somebody cope with being blind. One is curing somebody of blindness, a young child. So it's those kinds of contrasts that can help people realize that, yes, giving to St. Jude's Hospital or giving to the guide dogs is a really good thing to do, but they're actually ways of giving that magnify your giving by a dramatic amount. 
Yeah. And P- Peter Singer sums it up really well, I think, when he talks about engaging head with heart, that, those two things together, yeah? Yeah, I think that's a really... And yeah, Nelson Mandela said the same thing. He has a famous quotation where he said, the combination of the head and the heart is, a, is formidable. And so I think smart people have known this, and, and Peter says it. But an example of where you think you're doing good might not really be doing good, my son points out to me. You might be supporting some agricultural venture, let's say, in Uganda, and you're supporting some subsidies, but actually at the same time, you're undermining the agricultural community in that society such that um, you're lowering the prices that they can get and making it more difficult for them to grow their businesses. So it's really hard to know what's effective. And that's why I think organizations like ours that make it easier for people to know where to give impactfully are very important because it's not always an easy thing to figure out. And if you thinking about, you know, your household and being a present dad and being a good dad, have you grown some, you know, sort of quite altruistic? I know you don't use that word, but are your children philanthropists? Do they yeah. care about the world? Yeah. My son is an organic vegetable farmer. So he went to one of the most prestigious universities in the United States, but ended up becoming a farmer. And I think that was the way that he decided to actualize the values that he thought he that he had gotten from his mom and his dad, which was to grow sustainable food, to train farmers, to live a minimalist lifestyle, and to be productive in helping other people. So I would say, yes, in a very different way, Noah is. My daughter is a senior policy person for one of the counties in the state of Washington and works in affordable housing, health care, and racial equity. And so she's very much interested in making her community better, but she's a significant donor to the life you can save as well. Because she recognizes, like Peter did and Diana and I do, that actually by giving to the life you can save for our own operations, she can magnify her donation such that she may give us $4,000 in a year, but that we can multiply that maybe 17 times. So it's like she gave it $98,000 because last year for every dollar that we spent, we raised approximately $17. It's hard to know whether that number is exactly right, but... Kayla, you asked the question about my daughter, thinks it's 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 a reasonable way to look at it. So she does donate to us. She also donates to some charities in her own community. So I would say that my kids share Diana's and my values, but they actualize them in, in somewhat different ways. I would have loved to have Kayla come work at The Life You Can Save, but you can imagine that as close as she is to her father, I don't think working with her for her dad was what she dreamed of doing. Yeah. And did you talk about this stuff when you were, you know, with them when they were younger? Did you lead by example? Yeah. Well, I didn't lead by example. Their mom did because she was a family doctor and she didn't try to make a lot of money. And I think she led more by example. They knew I was working in this business, but we did talk about social equity and political issues all the time. One of Kayla told me that one of her friends said that coming over to our house for dinner was like being in a social studies class. I don't know if that was a compliment or a criticism, but um, <laughs> but I do think that my children grew up really cognizant of what was going on in the world around them. And um, they both, I think, in their own way, have tried to do a lot with their values. 
And Noah was asked in 19, well, when he was 20 and about to graduate from university, somebody was writing a book and interviewed Noah. And they, he asked them if he got his values from his parents or what he had learned from his parents. And he said, I've learned a lot from my parents, but most of all, I learned I shouldn't quit when I was 30. And <laughs> I, it sounds like a harsh criticism, but I thought it was great because what he was saying is, you know, my dad was this activist and then he went to work in this business. But I always applaud Noah for that. And uh, I think he's glad that I've re- re-entered the fray, if you will. Yeah, it sounds like you've done a good job. And in terms of your role in, in the charity and, and the vision for the charity in the future, just talk to that a bit. Well, my role right now is working with uh, various people who were who are leading certain groups in, in, in the charity. So a woman named Constanza is leading the distribution of the book and trying to develop partnerships. Stacey Black, our deputy director, is managing marketing and technology. So I don't know anything about technology, but I'm a sounding board for Stacy. So she lives in Cape Town. So we have a standing meeting at uh, 6.30 in the morning, my time, every day, except for, I think it's Friday. And so um, I'm always like, she's just keeping a list of things that she wants to talk to me about. Same with Constanza. I talk regularly with our executive director. But my main thrust in terms of the future is trying to find really rich people who want to support the life you can save the way Diane and I did, but people who are a lot richer so that we can dramatically grow our spending. Because I would much, last year I said that we raised 22 million on a spend of about 1.2 million, but I would rather spend $20 million and move $200 million, even though that's only a ratio of 10 to 1. Because I think that the impact comes from how much you do, not just how little you spend. So my main role is to, we call it the needle in the haystack, is to continue to search for people who have the capacity to give large amounts of money and help convince them that by giving it to the life you can save to grow our organization will we'll do the most good. And so that is a very significant role of mine. Wonderful. Charlie Brezler, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining me on Purposely. Oh, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do.